Good morning, everyone. Um, if we have not met, my name is Father Matthew, or just Matthew, it's fine. Um, and uh, it's a gift to be here today, to be invited by uh, Father John and Mother Janet to come and to preach. I always love to be here so much. Um, so thank you for your welcome, and thank you for making space um, for me to come and be here. Well, thank you, Gail. I love you, too. So, Father John, uh, who is on leave now, but last week, uh, before he went on leave, he preached uh, about the, the main theme of what Lent is, which is a journey to the cross. For Jesus, the cross is a little, literal cross. Uh, for us, it's, it's metaphorical. But the only way to get to the joy of the empty tomb is to go through the cross, as John reminded us uh, last week. Easter, which we'll get to in a bit, is a declarative, defiant proclamation over the world in our lives that no matter how dark or long the night is, no matter how random and apparently meaningless the suffering is all around us, that the trajectory of all things, every human story, every living thing, all creation, now because of Christ, is moving, can be moving, in the direction of resurrection. It is in that sense, Easter is a season of faith, like of belief in a world that we can't yet see, based on an event that we were not there to witness, but we choose as Christians to hold on to this belief that this was literal history with cosmic consequences. Easter is a season of faith in which you and I choose to believe that despite the evidence to the contrary, we're living in a good story with a victorious end. This is what Easter is. And Easter is also a season of action because we are reminded that if we are in fact living in a world that has that end, then we should get to work. This is what Paul's great conclusion of 1 Corinthians 15 is all about. Therefore, you and I are um, ambassadors for this new world. We are evidence of the first fruits. We are new creation people who push back the fall and choose to make this world a reflection of the one that God is going to bring into being. <clears throat> so that's Easter. But we're not in Easter yet. We're in Lent. And Lent is less, I think, a season about faith and more a season about life as it is, like just accepting the world as it is, accepting where we actually are, the true state that you and I find ourselves in and the true state that the world is in. You might say... Lent is about the real world, the world that we're inhabiting. And in that sense, it's an uncomfortable season for you and me to stay in because it is a reminder of how much suffering and pain and greed and, and, and just awful losses all around us. It is a reminder that we as individuals in this world desperately needs healing and repair and rescue. And that we are, it seems, far from that rescue. Lent is also a time in which we are exposed as the weak people that we are. So for me, Lenten fasting has been yet one more life lesson of how much I am controlled by my cravings, how little willpower I have, and how adept I am at making excuses. 
And I don't like that part of me. I don't want to look at it. I try to ignore that. And yet, nonetheless, that part is always there. Even when I'm not looking at it, Lent is just the insistence for 40 days that I sit with how uncomfortable that part of me makes me feel. Now, on Easter, that broken man who is controlled by cravings and has very little willpower is going to have a word spoken over him, and the word is going to be victorious. Hey, friend, chin up. God's making all things new. Lift your head. He is even taking the broken parts of you and using it to make something beautiful. And in his time, he will restore you. You are not bound by your cravings. You're bound by nothing but love. And therefore, you are free in Christ to live as though that were true. But we're not at Easter yet. So we don't get to say those things over ourselves quite yet. Lent is us just sitting in the uncomfortable reflection we see in the mirror. And the other thing about Lent that's sort of magical is that it takes away the small things that you and I use throughout the rest of the year to distract ourselves from that painful knowledge. So all the little things that I do to numb myself, to distract myself, all the little things that I do to serve as poor substitutes for the real thing and yet momentary substitutes all the same, those get taken away and I'm stuck, you're stuck, just sitting here with how much you and I need rescue. How much you and I need a savior. There is no way to get to Easter joy except by going through the cross. And so we come to today's text, the gospel reading, and it's a very unsettling story of Jesus, but it's very Lenten in that sense. It is strong medicine. It's, um, it's bitter coffee. Yeah. We see a side of Jesus in this text that seems to go so far against so much of the other things Jesus does and says that we have to ask, what is going on here? <laughs> Who is this? And what did you do with Jesus? Because it's hard to square up the person we see making a whip and driving animals and people out of a temple with the person who says... Turn the cheek. How do we do that? How do we make sense of what's um, going on here? Our gospel text comes to us in the second chapter of John. Now, if you have been around the Bible for a while, you might be wondering what this story is doing in John chapter 2. Do you know why? Because in every other gospel, this story happens on the last week of Jesus' life like right after Palm Sunday. And let me just let you know on a little secret. There's a lot of days in Jesus' life between John chapter 2 and the crucifixion, like more than four or five. So what is John doing by placing these two stories next to each other? Now, when I was young, I used to think, I guess he did it twice? But I don't think that that's what's going on here. I don't think Jesus cleansed the temple two times. I'm pretty sure we would have heard of it uh, in some other record. Now, what we know about John's gospel is that John is more communicating a theology of Christ than he is a history of Christ. That's not to say that he's fabricating these events. It's saying that he chose to compose and edit his gospel in such a way so as to communicate a message, a theme, a theology of what Jesus is here to do, of what the Christ came to do. So John intentionally takes a story 
from the end of Jesus' life and puts it all the way up here at the beginning of Jesus' life, and he does it for a reason. So to understand what that reason might be, we first have to ask, well, what else is going on in John chapter 2? I'm glad you asked. Earlier in John chapter 2, we are at the wedding of Cana. The wedding of Cana is the first public act of Jesus' ministry. Meanwhile, the cleansing of the temple is Jesus' last or one of his last public acts. In the wedding of Cana, Jesus is a guest in someone else's house who comes to save the day. And in the cleansing of the temple, Jesus is the owner of the house who's coming to clean it out. But even more importantly, I think, what we see in John 2, 1 to 12, and then 13 to 21, is the fullness, the wholeness of what Christ came uh, to do. So there's this really famous icon called Christ Pentocrator, and it was uh, first created in the 5th century, so very old. But it wasn't discovered until like the 1950s. So it just sat in this little monastery in Sinai for a long time. And it is meant to show Christ uh, as all-powerful. What's really interesting about this icon, people have noted this for a long time, is if you take it and you cut it in half, what emerges from it is two very different-looking people. Two totally different-looking men. One meek, mild, gentle. One powerful, foreboding. The one on the left is merciful, his eyes are tender, his hand in the sign of a blessing. The one on the other side, on the right, did I say that twice? The one on the right is holding the scriptures, his brow is furrowed, he looks menacing, there's authority to him. Now, I don't think I have to like convince you that our like cultural moment, we are way more into lefty Jesus. We, we are far more interested in Jesus meek and mild, Jesus friendly, you know, friend of sinners, Jesus accepting all people, Jesus who welcomes everyone to his table. We, we, that's the moment. Not every, not every Christian, there are exceptions. Our brethren in the fundamentalist movement would probably be like, I like you. I'm a, more of a righty Jesus kind of guy. But most of us, most of us lean in the direction of lefty Jesus. We're comfortable with that version. I'm not speaking politically, just to be clear. We're, we're, he, we're, we're comfortable with this kind of Jesus. He doesn't challenge us. He doesn't go against our cultural mores. He's just, he's just there. He's just kind of like along for the ride. He's cool, Jesus. He's the kind of Jesus that shows up at a wedding and someone says, we've run out of wine. And he says, does anyone have 180 gallons of water? <laughs> we're we like that, you know, cool the guy we wanted our barbecues. <laughs> but the point of the icon is that there is no such thing as lefty Jesus or righty Jesus. There's one Christ, and the same Christ who came and turned the water into wine to rescue the party that could go on for days and days is the same Christ who three years later, as John fast-forwards the tape, will go into the temple and be so outraged by what he discovers there that he will bind together rushes to create a whip and drive everything out of the temple. So the question I think we need to ask is, what is making Jesus so upset that he would do this? That he would appear to act so out of character, although it's actually in consistent character with who he is throughout. Well, 
Some people have speculated that what's going on here is that Christ comes in and he sees the coins. I think this is actually why even our lectionary uh, put the Ten Commandments on this Sunday. That he comes into the temple and he sees the coins and some of the coins have the, the emperor's icon on it. And Jesus is outraged about this because this is a violation of the second commandment. And so Jesus gets very upset and he, and he throws all these icons, all these false graven images out of the temple. A lot of people are like, eh, I'm not really sure that makes a lot of sense. Why would he push the animals out? So on and so forth. I think actually the, the, maybe the, the, the better way or at least maybe the more generous way to read the text is that what is happening in the temple is a legitimate thing. That people are traveling from all over the world to come to the high holy days in Jerusalem. In fact, during Passover, Jerusalem, the relatively small city, would swell in population five to ten times its normal size. So it's just overrun with people from all over the empire, and they're coming in with foreign currency, they're coming in with no livestock, but they're there to make sacrifices. So they go to the temple, they exchange their currency, they buy a bird, they buy a sheep, they go and they make the sacrifice. They're there to do this, and the, the, this is a necessary form of infrastructure that makes the temple uh, worship functional. But something about it angers Jesus. Something about it makes him so angry, in fact, that we know that people were running out of here, leaving behind probably property, Money? What is it about this that angers Jesus so much? Jesus makes a whip, it says. This is a hard image for us. Probably as you think of Jesus, you do not picture him with a whip in his hand. Now, I do think a couple of things need to be said to kind of maybe couch this a little bit. One, the Greek literally says a cord of rushes. So literally, scraps and fodder from cattle, like sticks, and he picks up and he binds together. He's not putting welts on people with this. But I think even more important, I don't think he ever touches a person with it. Because the text literally says that he formed a whip and drove them all out of the temple, both the cattle and the sheep. So he's using it to drive animals out. Then he goes to the people selling the birds and he says, get the birds out of here. Get out of here. So he's, he's not in there punching people and knocking people over and flipping tables over and hitting people like a WWF. <laughs> there is, and I think it's important to say that. And the reason is, is because ever since the church fathers, there has been a lot of debate about what is going on here. The question, of course, is, is Jesus hitting people. And I think it's very important to say no. I think that's important to say because otherwise we end up with, well, otherwise we end up with a vision of Jesus that seems to give license to any one of his followers whenever they feel like they're entering into their temple cleansing moment to use whatever force they may have, whatever form of aggression or violence or harm in order to get their mission across. And in fact, we know that this text has been used. I've read books. I read a book 10 years ago called No More Christian Nice Guy. This was the favorite story of the person <laughs> who wrote this book. This book was there to tell you that Jesus was in fact a wild chest-thumping, untamable, dangerous man, and this is what Christian men should be like. And we have all seen in the last 10 years, with all the scandals in the church, what happens when that sort of naked power and that understanding of what Christ is like seeps into the brain of pastors. 
It creates monsters. I think it's important for us to be like, Jesus is doing something controlled here, measured. I'm not trying to neuter the aggression. He's clearly upset. But at the same time, (laughs) he's not starting a brawl. He's not out of control. But he is upset. He is worked up. But he hasn't lost his cool. He hasn't blown his top. This doesn't give you and me permission to get so furious we drive like idiots or throw things across the room when we get really angry because that's not what's going on here. What is going on? Jesus is not in this story there to hurt people. He's there to cleanse the temple. Zeal for your house, it says, will eat me up. Jesus is concerned that the temple... This holy space, this thin place where heaven and earth meet, where the, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man interlock with one another, that this is being um, polluted, that it's being distracted, that the marketplace that is in the middle of this temple is just taking people away from why they are there. It, it's like if we were in here worshiping and someone had decided to make the lobby like an extension of the Buford Highway Farmer's Market. It's just going to make it harder, you know? Jesus might go in there and turn over the organic banana tables. (laughs) These don't belong in here, he says. Because it's distracting from the singular focus that God demands and deserves. Now, just that idea in and of itself is not a culturally cool idea. In fact, the more liberal, modern-minded ones among us might still say, Does he have to overreact so much, though? Is it really such a big deal? Can't he just let it be? And of course, the answer is no, he can't, because Jesus is consumed with zeal for his Father to be worshipped. He understands that God is holy. And as a holy God, it's not this optional, maybe I'll take care of what I, maybe I'll work. It's It's like, no, it's like everything goes to God because God deserves and owns everything. And that is something that grates against, you know, like our popular understanding of what God is like. We, we even hear, and perhaps you've even said things like, I prefer to think of God as gentle. I prefer to think of God as uh, friendly. I prefer to think of God as fatherly, meaning uh, kind, accepting, good. Um, God is all those things. But when you and I say, I prefer to think of God as something, what we are admitting is that we think we get to create what God is like and not the other way around. That we're the ones who come up with who God is and he has to fit into that mold, which is, um, which is totally fine if God doesn't exist, right? Because if God is actually just something that we create in popular imagination, and it is just an extension or an expression of the way we understand the world, then have at it. Let your God be whatever you think is the, the popular you know, way of viewing the world at this moment. But if God is real, then, then what you and I prefer to think about him doesn't matter at all, really. It's like a person driving on a a windy mountain road who gets tired of so many turns and coming up on a hairpin curve goes, I prefer to think of this road as straight. (laughs) You know, good luck with that. What we prefer to think doesn't matter. 
We all know that if we want to navigate a road, we have to let the road direct us. We don't get to direct the road. And I think what Jesus is upset about this is that they had polluted and filled the temple with so many distractions that people were no longer there to do the thing they were there to do, which is to adore, to be devoted to, to love, to serve, to worship, to admire, to extol the holiness, the perfection, the beauty, the glory of Israel's God. Jesus is zealous that his father would be worshipped in a way that he deserves. Now, the religious rulers don't like this. They say, you have no business doing this. You don't have the authority to do this. Why in the world do you think you're entitled to this? And Jesus answers their challenge with a very, very cryptic um, uh, uh, prophecy about his own death and, and resurrection, which is, so brilliant, you know, by what authority do you do these things? And he says in a very cryptic way that they don't get at all because they're always missing the point with Jesus. He's like, I'm going to die and rise again by that authority. That's my authority. I'm the living Christ, king of the universe. I'm going to conquer death and sin and evil by that authority. But they don't get it. They miss the point entirely as they always do. And they will all the way to the end. And his disciples don't really get it either. But John tells us they get it later. They get it six days later, actually. When they're sitting in the room with the Jesus, who's now showing him, showing them his hands and his feet and his side. When they're looking at the real temple who was raised to the ground three days earlier and has now been fully rebuilt and glorified in their presence. Now, it says, they get it. And I think the reason they get it I'm just going to come in for a landing here. The reason they get it is because we read in John chapter 20, so 18 chapters later, but just six days, Jesus at that moment breathes on them like God in the garden, and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. And when they receive the Holy Spirit, their eyes are enlightened. They finally see the world as it is. They understand the gospel. They understand the scriptures. But maybe even more importantly for our text today, they become temples themselves. And God is jealous over his temples. Zeal for his house consumes him. You and me and every Christian, every person who's received the Holy Spirit has become as Christ was indwelt by the Spirit and was a living temple. You and I are now temples You and I are now thin spaces where heaven and earth meet. So that every place that you are, when you're at home, when you're on a Zoom call, God help us, when you're on an airplane, when you're in a restaurant, God is there because you are a temple. You're a thin space. And let me tell you, friends, that idea has massive Easter implications to it. But we're in Lent. So the question for us today is, what might Jesus want to drive out of my temple? What are the things that you and I might have cluttered ourselves up with and polluted our hearts with so that we are unable to have the devotion, the singularity of focus, the pure adoration of God that he deserves that he demands. In what ways has my heart become a marketplace 
instead of a sanctuary. In the book of James, which is, of course, written by the brother of Jesus, and probably knew something as a person who grew up with Jesus, knew something of what Jesus was like when he got the fire in his eyes. Because they're brothers, you know? And brothers see the fire in each other's eyes a lot. Because I have boys and I know that. He says in, John, uh, in James chapter 4, and I don't know, maybe he's thinking about the temple. He says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is for nothing that the scripture says, and this is it, God yearns jealously for the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But he gives more grace. Therefore it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Here's a good Lenten word for us. Cleanse your hands, sinners. Purify your hearts, double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. And let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into dejection. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And he will exalt you. And so before we come to confess and to come to the table and to receive grace. Let's just take a minute. I just invite you to close your eyes with me and just hold the hands of your temple open before the Lord and just ask, what are you overturning in my heart? What have I let get in the way of the sort of devoted life that you call me to? How have I taken in pollutants that are distracting me? But he gives more grace. Lord, we remember that your movement towards us, which at times can feel aggressive, if we're honest, is motivated only by love. God, you are not interested in hurting people, but washing them, purifying them. And God, we admit I admit that when I refuse to let that work happen in me or when I resist it, I'm actually robbing myself of joy. And I am making myself less than what you have called me to be. And so, Jesus, I just pray that you would please make me cooperative. You would just make us cooperative. Whatever it is you're putting your fingers on in our hearts. And Lord, whatever small resistances are rising up in us, whatever excuses are churning around in us, 
whatever justifications, that we would look in your eyes and know that the fire in them is love. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're going to read the Apostles'